All right, we wrap up our study in the book of Esther today. So if you have a Bible, open to Esther chapter 10. And uh, chapter 10 is really long, so get ready. <laughs> it's a grand total of three verses. <laughs> All right, so Esther 10, verse 1. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. I've had a few people in the past few weeks ask me, are you going to teach a whole sermon out of three verses? Yes. Yes. We've done it out of two words before. We can do three verses, right? So we can do that. This is kind of like our closing ceremony for this book. It's kind of sad. It's been fun. Something to think about in regards to Mordecai, when you think about people like this, that without them, world history would be completely different. If you can think about things like this, yes, the world would go on. Yes, the Jewish people would still be in existence, but it would look really different. And even Mordecai acknowledged this in Esther chapter 4, verse 14. He said, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. So he acknowledges this. You know, the world will go on, the Jews will be saved. And so we look at figures in history who, without them, the world would be completely different. And you take someone like Napoleon as an example, right? Napoleon, and we wouldn't have that combination of chocolate, strawberry, and vanilla without him, you know? Like, it just... This is something that my cousins, my aunts and uncles really messed me up on. They always told me they had Napoleon ice cream in their freezer. So it was like, oh, Napoleon. So when I was a little kid tagging along and just going there, like, and break out the Napoleon, the Napoleon, right? And everyone has a Napoleon. And it wasn't until, like, I was in school and I learned about this French and political figure, this figure that changed the world. And then I automatically drew a line between my favorite ice cream and this character from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. You know, and that movie was really big for me because, you know, San Dimas was two cities away from where I grew up, so it was really big, Napoleon. Let's get to more important things. Neapolitan ice cream. And all I have to say is in and out. That's it. Right? Just if you never had that, you're not Californian. Okay? You gotta go and do that. Now back to Esther. So there are these figures in history who have shaped it for us, Mordecai being one of these people, just like Napoleon and his ice cream, right? Just the same thing. And things would be really different for the Jews today if not for Mordecai. He helped rescue the Jews from genocide within the Persian Empire. Pastor Shamron was sharing about the genocide of Cambodia, how two, three million lives were lost there. I don't know who the Mordecai was there or if there was even a Mordecai, but how different things would be if there was something for that. And so we think about someone like a Mordecai and what he's remembered for. And you look at verse 3, it says, He sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. We'll expound on this a little bit later, but let's keep that in the back of our mind as we go into verse 1. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. So Ahasuerus was about his regular business, collecting taxes from his kingdom. And so it was just business as usual. 
That wasn't the picture that Haman painted for the king, though, in regards to the Jews. You recall the picture Haman painted in Esther chapter 3, verses 8 and 9 for the king about the Jews. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's law so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. What we see in chapter 10 is that the king is actually really fine with the Jews. He has no problem with the Jews at all. The picture that Haman painted was inaccurate. And he also seems to be completely fine financially. He's imposing taxes on the land, the coastlands, and, and the Jews paid their taxes just like every other citizen in Persia, just as we pay our taxes to our human institutions. Peter instructs us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 12 through 15, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as they are sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Paul instructs similarly in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. I find it funny how our governing authorities keep trying to take God out of our government, even though through the Bible, the Bible gives them authority to govern us. You'd figure, hey, let's use this. Let's use this for these people, but they don't want to do that. I don't get it. Because we are to respect the word of God and we would be subjects to our human institutions. We are to do that. And so I just find some irony in that. Let's just skip down to verse 5, Romans 13. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 12, verse 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And this is when the Pharisees and the Herodians tried to trap him about the subject of taxation. We are to be good citizens. We are to be good citizens. It is the will of God for us to do good where we live. And this was recognized in Mordecai, who was given this really high honor. The book of Esther is really funny in that her name's not even mentioned in this last chapter. And yet she had this really significant part in the deliverance of the Jews. And she rose to this place of prominence as queen, as we know from early on in this story. And from her position, she was able to expose Haman's evil plans and she remained queen. And you can't get to any higher position than that. And so her cousin Mordecai, you know, there's this different story with him, though. And chapter 10 would be about his rise to prominence. Now let's look at verse 2, chapter 10 of Esther. And all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? So we notice 
that Esther's not mentioned in this chapter. And we notice that God is not mentioned in this chapter at all. God's actually not mentioned in this entire book. And we read that the king advanced Mordecai. Yes, King Ahasuerus did. But who was behind that? God is not explicitly mentioned in this book of Esther, but we see his fingerprints throughout this book. We see him working throughout this book. Verse 3, For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Who was Mordecai before he became the second most powerful person, second only to King Ahasuerus? Who was he? Just an average guy. Just your average guy. Look back to Esther chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. This is your average guy. His family was one of those many families who were taken in the Babylonian captivity. Mordecai was born in Persia. He was raised in Persia. And his family forced to be taken there. His family didn't choose to be taken there. And so he had his own family there. He had an uncle and his aunt. This uncle and aunt, they die. And they leave this girl named Esther, his cousin, who is now an orphan. So he takes her in. Esther becomes queen. He, being the average guy, is not elevated because he wants to hide his Jewishness from the king. And so what does he do? He just kind of hangs out in the king's gate. An average guy. He's nothing special. This is just who he is. And so now when you look at him as the second in rank to King Ahasuerus, we need to remember where this guy came from. He's just an average guy. We might think of him a little too highly, thinking like, oh, wow, this guy came from nothing, went to the second in command. But before we think of this, let's remember that Haman was also promoted by the king. And what happened to him? Esther chapter 3, verse 1 tells us, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And then we go to chapter 7, verse 10. And it says, and the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. See, we can't give too much credit to people, can we? Because just as easily as someone can be put up and elevated and raised, they can be torn down. And sometimes we get disillusioned with what people can do. What people can do for us or what we can do for ourselves. What we really need to rely on, who we really need to rely on is God. We need to rely on his word. Now look back to verse 2. In verse 2 we're told that these events were recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the Medians and the Persians. And these are books that have not been discovered by archaeologists today. We don't have physical proof evidence of these books. Yet... We know of historical events that line up with the history of these biblical books. We also know from the book of Esther that the king asked when he could not fall asleep to have these books brought to him and read to him, but we don't have the physical books themselves. 
But we do have the story and how it lines up with the biblical record. And the same is much for a lot of history and archaeology, sociology, botany, and all these different sorts of science in regards to works outside of the Bible and how much they line up with the Bible. What we have in secular history lines up with the biblical history. And I'm really looking forward to the day when archaeologists do find these books of the Chronicles of Media and Persia, if they still exist at all, because I'm confident that if they are found, that they're going to line up. Just like all the other things that have lined up in archaeological studies and digs that have brought those things up, like the Dead Sea Scrolls or whatever other evidence is out there. Here's an interesting thing. Have you noticed that people give so much credibility to historical works? Like, oh, a book of history, a book of antiquity, and they read it, and they read it just like the gospel, yet when they read the gospel or the Bible, they don't give the same credit. Yet many scholars, many historians, many archaeologists use the Bible as reference for their own fields of study. Many archaeologists use the Bible to figure out where certain things used to exist because that is their only kind of map. But you pull someone from the street and sometimes they give more regard to a other book and they view the Bible as an irrelevant book. I find it odd that many people look at the historical works of Josephus and other secular records with such high regard, but when they look at the gospel accounts, historical accounts, they're disregarded. Now, Christianity has no problems with reading Roman or Jewish history because they actually confirm what is found in the New Testament. But will people read the New Testament to find out about Roman and Jewish history? Sometimes. Scholars do. But it's through the lens that perceives the gospel not as the word of God. Even when Jewish and Roman historical accounts, they line up with the biblical account You think of things like Jesus being crucified under the governance of Pontius Pilate. That there are explanations to Jesus' physical disappearance, but there is no proof of that. And the most plausible explanation is actually found in our Bible, in the resurrection. But that explanation is discounted while everything that Josephus or other Jewish or Roman historians have written is just kind of accepted as fact. And I find that to just be a double standard. As Christians, it's easy for us to confirm our biblical history with world history, and I love that about Christianity, that our faith is confirmed, it is affirmed by secular history, archaeology, botany, biology, other sciences, and it is not so with other beliefs, not so with other religions. Please check it out yourself, and you'll see how they don't line up, whether it is their archaeology or their report of history or their botany or whatever it may be that it doesn't line up that certain things in the United States didn't exist even though they have it written in their religious books it doesn't line up so how is it that someone like Mordecai rises to such prominence in the Persian Empire how does someone like Joseph rise up to such power in the Egyptian Empire in Genesis how does someone like Daniel rise to such influence in the Babylonian Empire. Now, think about all of these people. You can throw Moses in this mix as well. Is that all coincidence? Is it a coincidence that they're all Jewish? See, they all have the same God. It's all the same God, a God who saves, a God who rescues, a God who delivers, 
And time and time again, God came through. And we see that Mordecai was second in rank to the king. He was a great person among the Jews. He was popular with the multitudes. So what? Because now what? What happens after this? While we read that he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. You know, that's great and all, but what does all of this look like? Let's look at what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 15, verses 4 through 6. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This threat of genocide from Haman wasn't the last time that the Jews had to worry about such an evil. It has happened over and over and over again. So where is that hope that Paul wrote about? Where is the Savior? Where is the Deliverer? Where is the Great Rescuer? It's the same one the Gentiles have. It's Jesus. And the Scriptures all point to Him, our ultimate hope. You see, the salvation from Haman and the genocide was a deliverance, but it was not the deliverance. It was not the deliverance for the everlasting peace. Because again, the Jews would face these genocide threats over and over again. You look at the Holocaust in World War II. You just look at the world history from 2,500 years up until this point. And so there is this greater hope in store, this great deliverance, this great salvation. Let's turn back to Esther chapter 9, verse 20. I want to point out this phrase in there that's a really important phrase in the Bible. Verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far. And that's the phrase I want to point out, near, far. Now, you guys remember Grover from Sesame Street? I really think that Grover and Yoda are related. Have you ever heard their voices? Near? Far? Like they sound like they're the same. Anyway, near and far. The Bible is full of these pictures, right? Full of pictures of this distance using words near and far. You look at Isaiah chapter 57. This is what the prophet Isaiah wrote. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made." Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Now this phrase, peace, peace to the far and to the near. You know, it is in God's mercy that he invites all, those who are far and those who are near, to peace. To receive the shalom of God, the peace of God, no longer being at war with God. 
Isaiah speaks of this ultimate deliverance, this great salvation, as does Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 17. And he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. Far off referring to Gentiles, near referring to Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So in Esther chapter 9, verse 20, Mordecai sent news of this salvation, this deliverance, That was not the ultimate news of salvation and deliverance, but it was just this glimpse of this greater salvation, of this greater deliverance. The peace that those experienced in Esther's day was just for this finite period of time. It was not the announcement of everlasting peace that we hear from Isaiah 57, from Ephesians 2, or from Acts 2. Look at Acts 2, starting in verse 38. This is Peter. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That was ultimate peace. And throughout the scriptures, we get these glimpses, these foretastes of the ultimate peace. All the way back to Genesis, right? I pointed out Joseph. Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers, who was imprisoned for a crime that he didn't commit. He rises to the second most powerful position in the Egyptian empire to save his people from famine. There's a deliverance. There's a rescue. He brought peace to his people. That is a glimpse. It is a foretaste. We see this in Moses with the Exodus, his delivery of his people from slavery in Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, experiencing a miracle, a glimpse of a foretaste of peace by crossing the Red Sea. And we can go through many more glimpses and foretastes of peace. Let's just fast forward to Esther and this feast of Purim that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Purim is still celebrated 2,500 years later. The Jews still celebrate this. What is Purim a picture of? It's a glimpse. It's a foretaste of deliverance, of rescue, of peace. Because it's really obvious that that ultimate peace has not arrived yet. It is so obvious. Not just for the Jews, but just look at yourself. Have we experienced peace in the last 2,500 years of world history? Have humans experienced peace? Now we've all experienced glimpses of it, foretastes of it, but we haven't had the ultimate peace, and it's not just the Jews, it's all of us. Because if we're not at war with another country, we're fighting within neighborhoods and communities and families, just constantly fighting, we're constantly in conflict. If you're not in conflict with someone else, you're probably in conflict with yourself right? Whole fields of study dedicated because people have conflict within themselves. Therapists and counselors wouldn't have any business without conflict with yourself. So we all need ultimate peace. We've all probably experienced glimpses of it, but it hasn't lasted our entire life. Maybe a week, and then you got something else pop up. And so this is what the book of Esther points to. 
Yes, we have Purim to commemorate deliverance and peace. That was 2,500 years ago, but obviously that peace from back then didn't last forever. It points to an ultimate peace, an ultimate salvation, an ultimate deliverance that we don't have yet. Enter Jesus. Jesus offers us everlasting peace, everlasting salvation, everlasting deliverance. Mordecai was the man of the hour 2,500 years ago. I mean, you couldn't get bigger than this guy. And there have been people throughout history who have ushered in peace like Mordecai, just like Moses and Joseph and Esther, but all of them brought this temporary peace. Jesus brings us everlasting peace. Turn back to Isaiah 57. Look at those last couple verses there in verses 20 and 21. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Isn't it interesting that in Mark chapter 4, we see Jesus calming a tossing sea. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. It's not an accident that Jesus did that. Jesus offers ultimate peace. And you can think to yourself, who else can provide that? What else can provide that? You may even have an answer to that question as different theories and things. But after you arrive to that answer, and if it's not Jesus, you need to ask yourself, how? How does whatever else provide you with the ultimate peace? And in the Bible, we're told who, why, how. Look at Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. And through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. We celebrated the death and resurrection of Jesus last week during Easter. The death on the cross, the resurrection from the tomb, and all to bring peace between you and God. Do you have a storm going on in your life right now? Perhaps it is a marriage or finances or singleness, work, relationships, addictions, sexuality, whatever it may be, Jesus brings peace. Jesus calms. He brings a calm to the storm, whatever that storm is. And Esther shows us the unmentioned God, the unseen God who brings about peace, deliverance, salvation, not just when we need it, but hopefully it points us to our need in realizing that we need it for everlasting. Not just for the moment that we're going through that just kind of comes and goes and it's just temporary. 
but for everlasting, pointing us to Jesus for ultimate deliverance, ultimate peace. And I need to tell you that if you don't have Jesus in your life, you don't have this everlasting peace. You have glimpses. You have glimpses because of God's mercy on your life, because of God's grace on your life. But it is not for everlasting without Jesus. Last thing, something that we can learn from Mordecai. That peace isn't something that stays within us. It's not something that we can just say. It is not something that we can just think. That peace takes action. That you and I have to do something for peace. Now there is a time to grieve. There's a time to cry. You know, Esther chapter 4 shows us this. Mordecai grieving and crying out loud. But for peace, we can't stay there. We can't stay there moping or crying or grieving. We need to take action, just like Mordecai took action by challenging Esther, someone who can also accompany him and partner with him, to do something, to take action herself. And so he took action in challenging Esther, and then he took action in reporting this assassination attempt to Esther from the king, from his two eunuchs. And so that opened up an opportunity for him to be trusted by the king and to buy him some time when Haman was plotting to kill him. And so he also took action in writing this counter-edict to the one that Haman wrote to kill all the Jews within the Persian Empire. He sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people, but it wasn't just this lip service, and it wasn't just him thinking these things. He did something about it. He was an action-oriented person. To share the peace of God with people, it will take action on our part. Not just thinking about it, not just saying things about it. Of course we pray. Of course. Esther called all of her people for three days to fast for three days and to intercede for them. So yes, we think about it. Yes, we speak about it. But we will need to take action. We will need to do something about it. We need to do good in pursuit of sharing peace, of sharing the gospel, that Jesus is the answer for everlasting peace with God. Our testimony needs to be more than just what we say and just what we think. We need to live out our actions. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the book of Esther. Just in these past couple of months as we've been looking at this book and noticing that you're not mentioned in it at all, yet everything is pointing to you. And just like our world where many people don't recognize or acknowledge that you're working within all of it, but we see it, God. And we pray, Lord, that you would equip us to take action, that it doesn't just stay within ourselves, in our thought life, and in what we say, but we are actually doing something, Lord, to bring about peace to this world. In Jesus' name, amen.